Well, this should be fun this morning. I want to walk with you through a passage of Scripture in the book of 1 Corinthians. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to take some time this morning to look at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow me to read for you the passage that we're going to walk through together. Verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end. When He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. In the 2001 issue of Washingtonian Magazine, the famous host of the political talk show on Sunday morning, Meet the Press, was Tim Russert, famous man. And he was asked in the magazine, which person from all of human history would he most like to interview? His answer was succinct. He said, Jesus Christ He was on earth only for 33 years, and 2,000 years later, we still live with him and his teachings on a daily basis. In the year 2008, Mr. Russert was granted his wish, although the role of interviewer and interviewee was switched. I feel blessed personally because I get to interview Jesus Christ every day in His Holy Word, and find out exactly what He thinks and says. You see, for our Lord, for Him to speak about the resurrection was as natural as breathing. You'll read through the gospel accounts of Jesus, and you'll notice after a while that all of the teachings tend to go in one almost lovely monotone direction resurrection. For example, he's arguing with a number of Jewish men, and in the middle of that, in John chapter 6, he tells them very specifically, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There you go, talking about Resurrection. So he's in the middle of a discussion with a number of Jewish men, and instantly not only does he talk about believing in him, but he talks also right away about the last day. It was as natural for him as it was anything else. Resurrection? Uh-huh. Of course, resurrection. It was no different than him teaching on faith or on marriage. But it was really the end point of everything that he taught. Marriage? Why, the bride of Christ is all the saints in 
resurrected bodies dressed in pure white. And today, every marriage before that is really a picture of the great coming resurrection marriage. It will come at the end. Or even if you're just talking about having faith, Jesus clearly says over and over again, he who believes in me will have everlasting life, resurrection. It's just so easy. It's just so straightforward for him to think about things in this life is immediately to take them to their final destination where all things must go. Everything in life, in fact, is connected to resurrection. Did Jesus suffer? Well, yes, but he suffered for eternal good. Are you suffering? Scriptures tell you that there are rewards for suffering. We even looked at it several weeks ago when we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12, where Jesus told his disciples that when they're persecuted for righteousness, to absolutely be exultant because they're going to inherit the same kind of reward as did the prophets of old, who he's talking about having a reward in heaven that lasts forever. The same way the apostles teach us, if we are suffering, to think immediately about resurrection. For example, Peter, in the book of 1 Peter 5, verse 10, says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all glory, who has called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect and confirm and establish and strengthen you. Everything goes to the end. Are you like Mary, anxious about everything that's going on in life? Jesus will tell you, well, Mary, you don't have to be concerned about everything in life. Only one thing is necessary. You, precious believer, need to be told that Your Lord has overcome the grave. By His power, you will too. Most certainly, unless His entire world falls apart, and His Word falls apart, therefore this entire world has to fall apart, and nothing here is valid or real. In that case, just let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There is no meaning. There is no rationale. Everything here is merely for some kind of transient enjoyment, and every pain of life is merely something to be overcome, either through stuffing your heart with some kind of entertainment and gaiety, or trying to just fill your life with alcohol and drugs, which is where a lot of people end up going, sadly. Us, on the other hand, who have Christ, have a faith in Christ whom God raised from the dead. And the Scripture tells you that if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that's rescued. That's delivered from your greatest mortal enemy, death. Maybe you're in a situation where you're loving life. Maybe life is great for you. And you're loving life, but your heart knows that that can't be permanent and that that can't stay that way. And the fact is that you can't be truly happy until your resurrection occurs. Augustine wrote a great book called Confessions, and he writes about his life before he became a Christian. And in it he says, I lived in misery 
like every man whose soul is tethered by the love of things that cannot last and is agonized to lose them. Resurrection is, in fact, the great solemn truth that takes the most sad hearts and gives it lift and takes the most happy hearts and gives it meaning. Ask any parent, what's the worst thing that could happen to you as a parent? Your own death or the death of your child? Oh, you know that very, very well. That's easy. But what immense comfort there is in the truth that your Lord Jesus Christ takes your child to himself upon their death and brings them into eternal glory where you will be with them again. In fact, those parents who suffer having children die like that can be comforted in knowing that not only does the Lord Jesus Christ snatch them away from this cursed earth to himself, he allows them never to have to serve a single day under the mastery of sin. To know that they will have a great and glorious resurrection, that they even now are in the presence of God Almighty, fully mature, simply awaiting a body, is to bring the heart the necessary grace and kindness and salve that it needs to navigate the future days of immense and terrible loss. I don't know how parents in this world deal with it. Do you? When they lose children, how do they possibly maintain sanity? How do they possibly maintain sobriety? I have no idea how they do it. I pity the person who doesn't believe in resurrection. I feel sorry for that. Our world has really lost belief in resurrection. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's some statistics that are done. Back in the year 2000, about 20% of all burials were cremations. They're at 40% now and rising. So that most people, it seems like today, and I've been to a bunch of funerals lately, everyone has been a cremation. It's so interesting. There's no longer the faith that you... You honor the body of the individual by placing it in the ground because you have faith in the resurrection of the body. It seems like now it's all about other factors that I could talk about, but maybe would take me astray a little bit. Then there's always the choice about what do you do with the ashes. Turns out that uh, Disneyland today is a popular destination for ashes. In November of 2007, a woman was caught spreading the ashes on the Pirates of Caribbean ride. And they've actually had to go out now and buy special HEPA vacuum cleaners that can zap up the very tiny, fine particulates and pieces of bone. Sorry about that. But, and so they have to call out now, and they have a special code at Disneyland, HEPA cleanup, but it's not aisle five. It's like Pirates of the Caribbean. I feel sorry for the parents. What do they say to their little child? I'm sorry, sweetheart, that is not Tinkerbell's fairy dust. But it's, a, it's such a problem now as people don't know what to do with scattered remains. You have all this going on today. Of course, it's also probably correlative of the fact that our churches have also lost faith in the resurrection. Whenever a church makes relevance its goal and trying to relate to where people are at and not focusing on the singular critical issue of Christian faith, resurrection, and when they make the affairs of this life to be so ultimate, it's natural then that you're going to minimize resurrection or you're going to kind of 
append it onto the end of the Christian life as, oh, also at the end you get raised from the dead. And that's too bad. That's great sadness. If certainly Jesus' own disciples were probably indicative of the way we actually are. Every time he would talk to them about himself rising from the dead, it seemed like they would check out. And they wouldn't figure it out, and they couldn't understand it, and they wouldn't be able to put it together, but they didn't even ask the questions to put it together. And over and over again, Jesus would say, well, it's written, and it's going to happen, that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he's going to suffer the scourging under the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and they will crucify him, but on the third day he will rise. And then it appears that the disciples said, well, that's great, what time is dinner? It's just almost like a willful blindness or a willful... Boy, that's just not very important because it's not about this life. How different was our Lord who just really just seemed to talk about resurrection at every opportunity, every point, every way that he could. Every teaching seemed to tend to resurrection. Here in our text, we're actually dealing with a section where there are people who are exhibiting disbelief or unbelief in resurrection. If that sounds strange to you in church, just Think about the reality of our human hearts. Things that we haven't seen, things that we tangibly can't hold, for example, a resurrection, which is obviously in the afterlife, well, then if we can't hold it, we can't see it, we can't taste it, we can't smell it, we can't use our senses to figure it out, then therefore it's up for all kinds of frivolous debate, and whoever wants to weigh in on it can weigh in on it and figure it out on their own terms. That certainly appears to have gone on in the church of Corinth. We're almost the beneficiaries that it did go on in their church because then Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15 to set them straight, and we have that for the guidance of our faith. I mean, go back, if you would, to what, verse 12? If Christ is preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So apparently they had some teachers in the church saying that there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead. They might have even been saying, well, Jesus Christ got raised from the dead because he was so holy. But that's the only one who gets raised from the dead. The rest of us, when we die, we go into some kind of mass consciousness. This is what I believed when I was a pagan. We all go into some vast blue spirit ether world and Maybe all of our consciences join up and we're all like in spirit state and all that kind of stuff. Did you ever think that way? Did you kind of raise with that idea? Well, great. I mean, I mean, that's the way it was, especially when you grow up in the kind of the liberal northeast. It's like resurrection of the body. Well, who believes in that anymore? And even in verse 14, Paul goes on and he's kind of dealing here with their unbelief. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Sure enough. And we're liars. Look at verse 15. Moreover, we're found even to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Paul goes on. Really, now he's going to get at their heart. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. For a believer, that strikes home. For an unbeliever, it's like, eh, meh, 
still in my sins, whatever. But here's where Paul really starts to get personal with them. Look at verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is where Paul goes in the book of 1 Thessalonians as well. The people whom you love, people who died already in faith in Christ, they've perished. They're no more. They're gone. They're empty. Now you begin to wake up the sleeping soul that on Sunday morning comes to church and comes and sings the hymns and hears the words, but there's kind of that duality going on where they check in at the moment that they want to check in, but maybe at the sermon they especially check out. I know you're not that kind of person. But here's the point where that would start to break through now because you're saying that grandmother that you love or that uncle that you miss or your mommy or your daddy or your child, if there's no resurrection, they've perished. And all of a sudden the heads pop up because now you make it personal. That's where Paul goes. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. And that's really a great, great point, isn't it? That's a double argument there. To hope in Christ in this life only means to forego all kinds of earthly sensual pleasures in this world that it appears to offer, that are going to offer so much fun, so much joy, plenty of fulfillment. And then you really live a life of discipline, moral discipline. And then secondly, when you die, you find out that you were completely wrong and you were just disappointed. Let me just say right here too. In Romans chapter 10, when Paul is setting forth the gospel, he tells everybody that if you believe on Christ, you will not be disappointed. And what he means by that is that when that time comes and you die, the next five seconds after that, you will not be disappointed. If you end up not going to heaven, but you end up thinking you were going to heaven, but you don't go to heaven, you will be greatly disappointed, and that disappointment will never go away. But he's very clear, as a Christian, as a person who has repentantly trusted in Jesus Christ and obeys his teachings out of a heart of love and faith, not sheer duty, but sheer honor for his own sake, that person goes to heaven instantly upon death and into the presence of the Lord. Because resurrection is such a central topic to our faith, and because it's so great, because it's so permanent, because it's so important, I want to walk through with you then the text that we read earlier, and I want to pull out for you out of these texts six words of resurrection. So if you're taking notes, that's what you want to work with here. Six words of resurrection. All of them enforcing the same eternal, fantastic truth. Resurrection. 
so permanent, so glorious, so worth suffering for, so worth orienting life to attain, so worth having faith in Christ to hold on to, that it is, in fact, everything. Eternal life. Resurrection. And we'll start in verse 20. And the first word of resurrection is simply the word raised. Join me, please, back in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Paul is arguing from that that position that was also mentioned, as I said, over in 1 Thessalonians, where the idea is that he, here he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Those who have fallen asleep are those who have already died in the Lord. That word asleep is, is simply a metaphor. When someone dies, they lay down to sleep because obviously if they have gone, their soul has gone to be with the Lord. Their body is just laying there and looks like it is asleep. It's true, they have died, but actually their soul has gone to be with the Lord. So to use the word died or dead or death isn't really the best and accurate word. They're not dead. They're actually alive. The spirit part of them, in the presence of God Almighty, and they are beyond pain, suffering, sorrow, and they are in the presence of the Lord forever, forever. So that's why he uses the metaphor. And he's getting again at their hearts, isn't he? he? He's getting at their emotions here. So that you understand that he's the first fruits of those who are asleep. The first fruits being that wonderful Old Testament truth that you had two times a year to raise crops. You sowed and harvested, and then later in the year you sowed again and harvested again, and the first fruits came out of that first harvest, and a portion of it you brought over to the temple, and you offered it to the priests, and the priests, some of it they used for the feeding of their own families, and some of it was offered to the Lord. Christ was the first fruits. He was the early harvest, you can put it that way, of those who get resurrected. But there's those coming later, and in this case he's talking about those who you already know who have already gone on to be with the Lord, who have died in faith in Christ. So that's the idea there. The word then being raised, it means to get up, as, as if to get up from bed or to get up from lying on the ground. But here in these kind of contexts, raised means that the dead get up and live, listen, in a body. They get up, and they live in a body. Remember the time Jesus, uh, John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus. He's pretty close to two years through with his three-year ministry. And John the Baptist is in prison. Some of his disciples come. And they come with a question from John the Baptist. Are you really the Messiah is the gist of their question. So Jesus says this, that they're to take back to John the Baptist. He tells them, answer this way. Tell John this. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. Now, what's so funny is, at this point, 
John the Baptist's disciples, when they heard this thing that the, this, that the dead are raised up, they should have, that, that's just such a game changer. They should have just fallen down in the dust and worshipped. Actually, they probably should have already been worshipping when you talk about blind receiving sight. You and I have never seen that. We've never seen all these great miracles of lame people walking, lepers get cleansed, deaf people hearing. Instantly, creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, God creates, God does the work, and all these things happen. But when you get to the level of the resurrection of the dead, you're in a category unto itself. (laughs) The entire body brought back from death, because the person who can do that has power over death. So I imagine they went back to John the... Baptist and said, oh yeah, and by the way, the dead receive, the dead come back to life, as if to say, yeah, he does all these things. I'm like, what? He raises the dead to life? Man, are you familiar with partial resurrection? One day, Jesus raised a little girl who had died in the home. Do you remember that? Describes, I think it's Mark 7 somewhere, and he says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl arise. And so what does she do? She rises up, she gets up, and she asks mom and dad for food. Can you imagine the excitement for mom and dad that day after she had died from a probable sickness? Then there's the time there's a funeral march going out of a city called Nain, and a widow's only son is being carried on a pallet, and Jesus walks over to the funeral March, which is a little rude in and of itself. And then he commits the ultimate act of rudeness. He touches the dead body. But when he does, by the way, that would have made Jesus unclean in that culture. But by touching that, in that dead body, he makes it not only clean, he raises the young man to life. Can you imagine the joy of the mother that day? And then there's that wonderfully strange situation in Matthew chapter 27 where Jesus dies and a bunch of people get raised out of the tombs in Matthew 27:52 the tombs were open many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep here's our word were raised imagine the astonishment of the people all of those three scenarios i just shared with you all of those people got partially resurrected bodies The thing is, they didn't get eternal bodies. They were still in their earthly bodies. All of those examples are harbingers of something better to come. The permanent resurrection that our own Lord had upon his own resurrection. That's what's going on here back in verse 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead. A permanent resurrection body. That's the idea here. This is a body that is impervious to suffering. This is a body that has no tear ducts. It cannot cry. It cannot feel sorrow. It can't get tired after working. It can't have any body aches and pains. It cannot inherit any disease. It cannot contract any sickness. This is a body that is created by the eternal creator to live with him, beholding his glory for all eternity with the emotional and spiritual capacities so that throughout all the successive ages of eternity, it may increase in absorbing and understanding and appreciating the greater glories of God that must be forever and eternally greater revealed so that the soul 
of the eternally resurrected person is enjoying the magnificence of God as he shows himself more and more throughout all eternity. So not only is this a soul that doesn't experience any more of the kind of human pain that you and I experience on and on and on and that we've known all of our days and probably shall increase until the day we die. This is a body unlike even that to which the only thing we know. So magnificent, so glorious, so rich, so full, it is in fact the most exciting fact in the universe for you and I. What a shame that any of us or any church would want to minimize or relativize the resurrection as like it's a mere P.S. on the end of a really cool letter. Huh? So that's the first word, raised, raised. Then there is a, a second word, and uh, this word is kind of like the, well, what else, Ted, word. It's the word resurrection. Let's look at uh, verse 21 together. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. The word resurrection is anastasis. Last week I was greeting some of you with Christo Anesti. Christ has risen, Greek form of the phrase, anastasis. And what's so fun about this verse, by the way, every once in a while you'll come across a verse like this. Verse 21 is basically the Bible summarized in one verse. <laughs> For by one man came death, resurrection came by one man. There you go. Everything you need to really know. Death came by one man, resurrection came by one man. Any questions? All right, dismissed. Adam is the one man, obviously, who brought death, as he's mentioned in the very next verse, and Jesus Christ is obviously the man who brings the resurrection. That's how central he is to the human race. Adam, our forefather, from whom we are all begotten, physically Christ, for whom all of us who are in Christ are begotten spiritually. Now, what's really cool here is this word resurrection, anastasis, is made up of two parts. Ana, which is the preposition up, as if to stand up, and then the word stasis or stasis, which we have in our English language to be in a steady state, to be in stasis, but back then the idea was to stand. And the result of that is not merely to stand up, like we would talk about now, like I'm doing, but it's actually to stand up so that you never get back down. Permanent standing up. That's the idea. In fact, why don't you hold your finger here. I'm going to have you go back to another passage of Scripture. Just hold your finger here. I want you to go back to Acts chapter 24, okay? Acts chapter 24. This, by the way, this Anastasis body of the Lord Jesus, some people have already seen it. There were 500 people who saw it near the Sea of Galilee, it says in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples saw it. They, they saw the body eat fish, this resurrection body. The disciples, they actually saw in his resurrection body something that he still has with him, right? The wounds in his hands and feet. Maybe even the nail prints in his head, perhaps, from the, from the woven crown of thorns. Maybe even the perforated hole underneath his heart by which he was deemed as fully dead by the soldiers who were there. Perhaps he bears all those wounds in his eternal body. They saw all these things. Okay, are you with me back in Acts 24? Context is Paul, the great apostle Paul, is on trial for being a Christian. 
And uh, he's being really, the persecutors of Paul are the Pharisees and the Sadducees before a secular judge, which is kind of humorous in and of itself. But I want you to look at verse 10. He's before the judge who's the governor. And when the governor, in verse 10, had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. You with me? Knowing that for many years, Paul says, you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Wow. For Paul, as for any human being, having a hope in the resurrection affects us so intricately and so interwovenly that our own conscience is constantly weighing that I have to have a clear conscience both before men and before God. Wonderful, then, truth to believe. Did you notice in this passage, though, that Paul delivers a truth with some sting to it? That there's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. When you read that word resurrection, think body, not just merely having some spiritual life after death. Everybody has spiritual life after death. Nobody just dies and dissolves into nothing. But you see the great fruit of the work that it provides in our lives, in our consciences, that every, every relationship pertains to it. So we, I love how Paul wants to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Isn't that a wonderful way to live? So sensitive to our consciences. So blessedly sensitive to that wonderful faculty that you and I have to walk and to live and to think and to breathe and to go back over all things and to live in such an upright way that God's Word teaches our conscience how to live before both God and man. Beautiful. Well, why don't you go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. One thing we, we love about the Lord Jesus is His resurrection body. And one of the things He promises later on in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 is that your resurrection body, when it comes, is going to come in the twinkling of an eye. That's down in verses 51 and 52. And the picture there is of how long does it take for a beam of light to come from the sun and bounce off your eye just as long as that takes for just that glint to bounce off your eye and reflect when you see somebody's glinting eye, that's how long it takes for you to receive a resurrection body. 
I like what young, one young man told me who I had pastored for many years, and then he completely walked away from the faith, totally surprised us all. He had been so faithful, so diligent, so zealous, and then he gave it all up, went off to work for some department store, left his parents. He was in his 20s, ended up getting involved with girls and drugs, ended up getting a girl pregnant. And then he came back to Christ, really came to Christ. He was telling me that, Ted, God can raise the dead. Now that's power. He had a new and fresh appreciation for God. Power. Isn't that, I guess, part of the problem maybe is that we tend to forget what real power is. We tend to renegotiate the terms. Power. What's power? granting to us a resurrection body that lives and dwells forever. Forever. That's power. Okay, so that's our second word of resurrection. The word resurrection itself, Anastasis, just like the girl's name, Anastasia. It's resurrection. Okay, third most important word here, a third word of resurrection. Join me, please, in verse 22. For as an Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the word, made alive. It's a parallel to the previous verse. Those two verses, 21 and 22, are parallels to each other. Only this word, made alive, means to take something that has been long dead and to refashion it so that it comes to life again. Whereas, you know, resurrection is just the actual doing of the resurrection. This is two combined words of life and make or do and smushing them together into one wonderful Greek word that means to take something that is dead and to refashion it and to make it permanently alive. It's a rich word. I don't know if you follow what people are trying to do these days with cryogenics. They pay some weird sum of money and they stick some part of their body into a tank of you know, super cool, dry ice, and I hope the power doesn't go out someday. And they they keep that part of the body in dry ice in the faith that someday science is going to come up with a way to reattach, let's say it's their head in the cold tank, to a body. And somehow they're going to live again on top of an old body. So you're going to have this like ancient head with, I guess, a young body. I don't find it particularly attractive, but I guess I do understand where if I didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, it would be, okay, well, at least I can live again, maybe, hopefully. But it is certainly a vain idea, is it not? Pretty selfish. I want to live again on my terms, not on God's terms. But this is even better than that. This is actually not just being a long time dead, and then kind of getting back your same body. This is, no, being a long time dead and then being refashioned into something a whole lot better. That's the idea here. 150 years ago, science of the day taught spontaneous generation. Some of you who are maybe my age might remember. I remember being in 10th grade and my uh, biology teacher laughing and sneering at the people who used to believe in spontaneous generation for example, I used to teach, like in the early 1800s, that if you, if you take a barn and you put a shoe in there and you can put some hay in there, then in a few days what you'll have is like baby mice. 
It's called spontaneous generation. And they believed they couldn't figure out how baby mice would show up in a shoe in a barn with hay in it. I, and so, of course, our biology teacher laughed at it. And then the next, because it's so stupid, the idea that you can create life from non-life. <laughs> Come on, right? <laughs> how silly is And then the next class, he taught us evolution. There was this big bang of material, and it splattered all over the place, and we came out of that. And he wasn't laughing anymore. No difference whatsoever, actually. One was just big, one was just small, but it was the same principle. They believed that life came out of nothing, and that's what people believe today. No difference. Kind of sounds ridiculous. But this word here, make alive, is not a genesis. A genesis, like the book of Genesis, is to make life out of life. Really it is, because God establishes life, and then you see all the fruit trees, they're all going to they're all going to spawn according to their kind. And the mice, they're all going to spawn according to their kind, right? And the grass and the fish and the birds. And they're all going to populate after their kind. It's life out of life. It was kind of the idea, a genesis. And it was actually Louis Pasteur who debunked spontaneous generation with his theory of biogenesis. And he was hailed an amazing guy. Life only comes from life. And Louis Pasteur proved it. Of course, all they had to do was read Genesis chapter 1, and they would have got it out of there all the whole time. But this is even better than a Genesis. This is life out of death, not life out of life. See that? This is life out of death. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all will be made alive. It's life out of death. Amazing. By the way, every one of us who are believers in Christ are regenerated. We actually already have this reality within us. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit within us. We know what it is to be made alive. We have all the new affections and the new struggles and the new issues going on in life. This is what's referred to in Ephesians chapter 2 where the apostle writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Same word. Even our regeneration, even our new birth, being born again in Christ, all of that is like the down payment. You have a new man within you, and you are part of the new man. You are part of the new creation. And as such, all the spiritual realities of death and life are now available to you. You see them. The black and the white, you see it. You know that really the things that people say are gray are not gray. They're black and white. And all that is just a down payment that one day the regeneration that you have experienced as a repentant believer in Christ is going to be made full. And what do you get? When you... What do you, when, you put, when you buy a car, how much do you have to put down, right? Not much these days, right? Or a house. I guess you have to put down more for a down payment on a house. How much is the down payment of our regeneration compared to our resurrection? Probably pretty substantial because we get to see the eternal realities. We get to know the eternal realities, and we get to grow in them so that as life goes on, we grow deeper in the faith, we grow deeper in our understanding of Christ. We 
yearn and desire and mature in holiness and righteousness and love for the brethren. All these things then become more and more precious to us. Pretty substantial down payment that we've already got in the Holy Spirit. But I do want to say this. The fact that you struggle with sin so much is actually the proof that you're regenerate. It's the proof that you're right where you need to be. It's the proof that you're on your way to heaven. It's the proof that all of God's good promises are going to come true in your life because you struggle so much with sin. That's actually the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. He's not letting you go your own way. He's not letting you be, go to the blindness of your own condition. It's certain evidence that you have been made alive, in other words. That is the normal state of the Christian in this world. Part of the down payment that you are now struggling with. And you yearn for the redemption of your body so that you may be set free from the body of this death. The Apostle writes. Makes me wonder, though, why some people think that they can earn their way into heaven. The former New York City mayor, I won't say his name, but it rhymes with Zumberg. He believes he's going to heaven. I don't know if you saw this or not. In an interview with the New York Times several years ago, the 72-year-old man mentioned how after he's seeing so many of his friends die and he's going to so many funerals, he's sensing that his own time is near. But for some reason, he has very little doubt about his eternity. This is what he said in the New York Times. Quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Isn't, isn't this the same guy who kicked all the churches out of New York City schools? Just saying. So funny to have that kind of attitude. I mean, the man is a man of power. I know he's got everything in life that he's ever wanted. Wow. What is it, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. That's boasting. There won't be any of that. Hmm. Well, we got to move on. Okay, so that was the third word of resurrection. We saw it there at the end of verse 22. It was the word made alive. We're noting here it means not to be made alive out of life, but made alive out of death. You ready for the fourth word? Okay, fourth word is the word order, O-R-D-R. Order. Notice verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming, and then comes the end. We'll tack on the very beginning of verse 24 onto that. So the word order is the word tagma. If you go to Athens today, um, You'll no doubt see the government building, and you'll go to the square called Suntagma, which is where you take a bunch of military units, and you lay them all in their orders, and you lay them out, and that's why they call it Suntagma, because it was there that they fought significant battles as recently as World War II. Greece has a, a very proud and justifiably proud history for a small nation for standing up against, really, the Axis powers during World War II. And they sent men all over the place who died all over the world trying to fight for freedoms. They're a proud nation. And this is the idea that, that tagma here, or order, has to do with military rankings. And if you kind of keep that in mind, if you think about a military parade or so on, you think of different orders, then you're going to do great with this verse, verse 23. The idea then is that 
Christ himself has a military order or an order of resurrection that's going to occur in the future. And you're a part of that believer, precious, dear believer in Jesus Christ. You're part of that, of that future resurrection. So the first tagma, the first order, is the general of the entire army. That's Jesus Christ. He's mentioned there at the beginning of verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. He's the first fruits, different metaphor, but let's use the military metaphor. He's the general. Obviously, his resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. Next order, back to verse 23. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Here's where the next military rank. It's his soldiers who have lived during the time on earth with faith in Christ. Those who are Christ's at his coming. And it may even include Old Testament saints. The idea, though, is that it comes at the time of his coming. And obviously, that hasn't occurred yet. So the resurrection of our beloved brothers and sisters who have already passed on, and the resurrection of our own bodies, and the resurrection of our children and friends who will die after us and go to be with heaven, will all occur at one single time when Christ comes back. There's more detail actually later in this chapter. There's more detail over in 1 Thessalonians 4. But the fact is that in that resurrection, those who are dead in Christ get their bodies first, and then within a split second after that, all of those who are raised up from the earth get their bodies in a split second, those who are in Christ. And so they're all really at the same moment resurrected with a permanent glorified body. So here Paul is teaching some detail about resurrection. God really has a plan that's happening. That second military rank, which is all those who are Christ is coming, is the universal church for whom Christ died. It is the elect. And it maybe even includes, as I said, Old Testament Israel. And then there is another ranking. Look at the beginning of verse 24. Then comes the end. Or that word then could probably be better translated after. But the idea is that there's a third group that's raised at the end. And really the end here would be the end of all armed conflict. The end of all rebellion against God. So this would be all the rebels. This would be earth's rebels, all of them getting raised with eternal bodies that are outfitted to enable them to endure the eternal sufferings God has ordained for the rebels. Serious stuff, right? Resurrection isn't God's plan B. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and sat back and said, this is going to be fun to see what those cats do. It was always his plan that they, of their own free will, should choose the fruit of the tree and fall. And that that would enact a saving plan of the Lord Jesus Christ by which he would come and gather to himself a whole massive military army of faithful soldiers who love him first and above all things else in life and to whom he would then in great power raise from the dead on the final day. But 
Then there was also this aspect too that later on after that, another resurrection must occur of all those who have fought against him for all the ages. They must be raised and they must be equipped with bodies and have eyes that can read the handwriting of ordinances against them and that can hear his terrible swift judgment that will be executed upon them for not only their crimes in general against humanity, but their crimes in specific against God. And they shall hear it, and perhaps they shall even see it, if perhaps it is played back for them on that final day. And they shall then, according to the words of the book of Revelation, along with death and Hades, be cast into the lake of fire. All those many millions so opposed to the many millions who will go off and be with Christ, who will never taste the slightest drop of God's wrath, but shall only taste of His mercy and of His kindness and of His love. Such a separation to come. All those who joined with Satan shall go where Satan goes. And all of us who joined ourselves to Christ shall go where He goes. That's our fourth word of resurrection, then, order. Order. A fifth word, a fifth word for us, and we have two more to go. Fifth word, kingdom. Kingdom. Join me back in verse 24. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Wow. The kingdom that Jesus hands over to the Father is the kingdom of the resurrected saints, the people, raised people. Not all of the resurrected, just those, though, in His kingdom, in His ranks, who followed Him. Really, really a strict verse. A kingdom. A king has a kingdom, and here he has a people in his kingdom. And he takes them, and in an act of sublime power, hands back the very ones for whom he died as a love gift back to the Father. Here with the word kingdom, to establish the fact that he is in fact the king over all humanity. And he gives eternal life to as many as whom the Father has granted him. And so he grants back to the Father as a way to ultimately honor the great God and Father of us all and who architected the great and glorious plan of salvation, who ordained in great mystery that Adam should die and who ordained in just as great a mystery that you should be born of your mother and live this life and hear the truth and come to know him who is life indeed, be made like him, like one of his brothers, and brought at the end as part of his kingdom. What will it be like for you on that day when he hands you over to the God and Father except for the word glory? Glory. You who were broken in Adam beyond repair shall have, as the Scriptures foretell, glory. Glory. You. Yes, 
you. If you had any less, God would not be true to his word, and the value of Christ's death and resurrection on your behalf would not have been delivered and made plain. You shall have glory in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's only just hinting at the barest bones of things in this passage. There's more in Scripture, but there's far more for us that shall be revealed when we get there. Mm. You ever notice that so many of Jesus' warnings against hell were physical? Oh my, they were so physical. He would talk about gnashing of teeth. He talked about a worm that never dies, that continually eats. He talked about lakes of fire. Oh, all these kind of things. Almost all of his descriptions of hell were not spiritual. They were physical. Because the damned have resurrection bodies too, but they are in the resurrection of the damned. They are not in the resurrection of the just. Hmm. Why is it that people want to live to 150, do you think? Why is there such a push today to figure out a longer way to live? I mean, when the body gets old, it's really not all that fun to live, frankly, in many ways, physically anyways. Why is it everybody wants to live? Because they want to push out of their minds the fact that is ingrained in every one of us that we know that we shall go on living after we die and the truth is imprinted into us by our Creator that when we live after we die, it shall be in a body. So if I can live 150 years, I can push it away. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to let it affect me. Death comes by to all, does it not? Several years ago, CNN featured a guy who started a church in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the same guy who did the supersize me on McDonald's. Did you ever see that? Morgan Spurlock. CNN, of course, wanted to promote the church. Quote, this is what they said, There's an atheist church called the Sunday Assembly. It's a gathering place for people who want community, who want to be part of a group to talk and vent about life's problems without being told they are going to hell if they don't do X, Y, and Z. It's all the good parts of religion plus great pop music. And it says this, But no God. No God? No God? How cruel, how harsh. Oh, God? God's so good. Why would you ever want to do that? So when Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father, he says, here, Father, these are the people who loved you. These are the people who said, our Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are not the people who were the rebels. And then lastly, we have to finish up with this, please. Our last word of resurrection after kingdom, our sixth and final word is abolished. Abolished, which means to destroy or to make something powerless. Join me in verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. I mean, even if you could live to 150, 190, death is still coming. And it's all-powerful, in other words. It chases you down. You can't escape it. Nobody escapes death. But man, you get resurrected with Christ. Hey, guess what? Death is powerless to you. It's been abolished. Christ's last enemy, then, to be defeated is you. Only you being dead. He wants to defeat 
you being dead. And he does that with resurrection. So he'll abolish death by creating an everlasting resurrection body that you will live in forever. You see, if, we were, if the body was not necessary for living forever, we could all be joined together in some pseudo-spiritual condition and consciousness. But then Jesus Christ would never get the victory. And the fact is, is that if we lived after death without a body, we would be less than we are now. Some victory that would be. Some triumph that would be. We wouldn't have the means to sing. We wouldn't have the means to extol. We wouldn't have the means to communicate. We wouldn't have the pleasure of thinking. We wouldn't be able to taste and hear and do all the wonderful things that these bodies love to do. But we shall do them all and more for eternity. We shall not be less than we are now, but we shall be more. So abolished death. Death has to be destroyed. It must be overcome so that body and soul can be put back together again forever. And it must be put back together again in such a manner that death can never, ever touch it even again. It can't even get close. So these are our six words of resurrection. Raised, resurrection, made alive, order, kingdom, and abolished. And all of them together clarifying for us the central fact of our religion as Christians. The resurrection is guaranteed. It is coming for all. And it shall be absolutely glorious, absolutely permanent, and in every way the total desire of everything that is in our God-created hearts. That's why you yearn for it in your body. That's why you think about it. That's why you care. Your greatest enemy is not yourself. Your greatest enemy is not Satan. Your greatest enemy is not the world. It's not your spouse. It's not people at work. It's not your family. Your greatest enemy is death. And death has been conquered by your Lord. Shall we pray to him? Lord Jesus, we want to give you great glory and honor and remember that in your resurrection you didn't merely accomplish something that was great for yourself, but you accomplished something that was great for us. Having borne our sins in your body on the cross, you raised us in your body in resurrection. Thank you so much. Now grant to every one of my beloved brothers and sisters here a peace of conscience, a joy and comfort in knowing not only has Christ been raised from the dead, but so shall they by the very power of his word that raised him from the dead. It's in his name we thank you. Amen.